Welcome to Open Deeply Season 3, as we burn down shame and reclaim our power. The truths society pushes into the shadows are the very things that connect us. Truths around sexual authenticity, the wisdom of plant medicine, the pursuit of equity, and beyond. To open deeply, as Jack Kornfield says, takes tremendous courage, a warrior spirit. This unconventional path takes just that. So join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Kate Laurie, and my co-host is sex educator, Sunny Megatron. Today, Sunny and I are going to discuss the concept of fluid relationships versus the binary of non-monogamous or monogamous relationships. But before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is made for your entertainment and informational desires only. The podcast, any opinions we share, and any resources, including social media and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice and do not create a patient-client relationship. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without gaining clearance from your healthcare provider and receiving professional legal counsel. All the opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own. If you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to your nearest emergency center. We hope you enjoy the show. Alrighty, so Sunny, when I wrote my book, Open Deeply, I didn't know what was going to resonate for people. But for a lot of folks, it was the following quote about fluid relationships. Here goes. Today, I no longer identify as non-monogamous, but rather fluid. You might run into other definitions of fluid, but here's mine. A relationship or person that may shift from monogamy to non-monogamy, depending on what suits all partners involved and their changing life circumstances. A fluid relationship is not trapped within the confines of non-monogamy. Instead, a fluid relationship inherently has the full range of freedom to shift across the continuum from extreme monogamy on one end of the spectrum and then to extreme non-monogamy on the other end as life changes. Such relationships have the greatest ability to adapt to emotions and needs, and thus the highest ability to survive over time. I think many couples that define themselves as non-monogamous, polyamorous, or swingers are actually often in fluid relationships. The term non-monogamy was born as a result of a pendulum swing away from monogamy. I believe we've grown past such reactionary binary terms. When we dig our heels in and proclaim to be rigidly monogamous or non-monogamous out of fear of the challenges that a more flexible stance might bring, we are in danger of mistuning with what is truly ideal for us in any given moment. That's the paragraph that a lot of people have something to say to me about. There's a lot of people that are like, wow, that never occurred to me. For a lot of people, it's a relief. Because so many people want to do non-monogamy right. And so they, a lot of times they start listening to the dogma. And then they feel trapped in this little box of what it can be and who they should be. Yeah. And it's funny because 
for me, and this is just like my approach to relationships and life, really, it never dawned on me that it would be anything other than this, which is interesting. Of course, when you bring it up, I'm like, of course, it's human nature. And I deal with this a lot with people in the kink community, that when you learn about a new identity or a new part of yourself and you learn about the, quote, rules of whatever that is, you do stick to them like they are dogma, like this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what the rule book says. You mean I can change it up according to what my and my partner's needs are? And it's like, yeah, that's super common. Yeah. Especially when people are new, they get so rigid. When I'm speaking to an audience, a lot of times they'll ask me the question, so how does non-monogamy look? And when I tell them it's custom made, it's like a custom made suit or dress, they always give me the scrunchy face. You know, they, they want to be told what it looks like. And the idea of it being this amorphous thing is kind of terrifying to a lot of folks. Yeah, I think back... In school, right? When you, let's say your teacher or professor or whoever said, okay, your final project, it's this big research paper that you have to work on, you know, and it's like, okay, cool. And then they're like, and it can be on whatever subject you want. And you're like, I don't get choice. What do you mean? Whatever subject? Like, I don't even know where to begin. Give me an idea of where I can go with it. Like that was always the worst when it was an open-ended assignment. And I feel like when we talk about kink or non-monogamy or whatever, anything in life being customizable, if it's new to us, we don't have examples of all the possibilities. And we've brought this up so many times before on different podcasts about different subjects are really the same thing. You know, we're all talking about the same thing. It's like when we're scared and we don't know and we're insecure, then that rigidity becomes like our comfort. Like, okay, I have something to anchor to. I know what the rules are, even if the rules are kind of rigid and constricting and maybe not the best and the healthiest for everyone involved. At least there's someone told me what the assignment was. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And that brings up a question, you know, in terms of, I don't really feel like when you say fluid versus rigid, that that is inherently saying one is better than the other. I think there's fluid relationships that are toxic and fluid relationships that are healthy. There's rigid relationships that are healthy and rigid relationships that are toxic, you know? And it's just like, okay, so that's an interesting thing to think about. Like when would a more rigid relationship be the more healthy option? And it may be when you're new and you're scared and you're kind of like a little baby falling on your butt and falling on your face, or maybe you've decided to be swingers and you like that structure. I don't know. What do you think? Do you feel like there's times when a rigid model is actually healthier? Absolutely. And I, I think that, again, I'm, I'm, I'm like likening everything back to kink, but all of this stuff is so similar. I often say it's not exactly what specifically you're doing or not doing. It is the intention behind why and how you're doing it. So what's underneath these rigid rules? What's the motivation for them? If it's, I'm insecure and I need to control what you're doing because I have this jealousy that I'm pretending I don't have, but I really do. And so I'm controlling you with these rigid rules versus these rigid rules right now make sense for the bigger picture or the greater good based on our specific circumstances right now or long term or whatever it is. So to me, it's not the what, it's the why. 
Yeah, yeah, the intention and the why. That makes sense. Like, if you have a partner, whether you're in a non-monogamous relationship, a kink relationship, or a, a fusion of the two, if you have, like, say, a dom who is keeping you isolated from other people. He has all these rigid rules. And when you check inside your body, you feel a knife drop, you know, like it doesn't feel safe. These rigid rules actually may be indicators that you're in an abusive relationship. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Or even with the anxiety, like you were mentioning the anxiety, that can get tricky because a lot of people that come off as anxious or experiencing anxiety they can come off as controlling to their partner, whereas they are just trying to manage their anxiety. And where does the anxiety come from? It may come from just the newness of non-monogamy, or it could be some of their unresolved attachment injuries from their childhood are getting triggered by non-monogamy. That's something to sometimes talk out with a therapist or really slow down and cool your jets when you're running into that because you don't want to make your partner suffer by being controlling with your anxiety. But at the same time, if non-monogamy or kink is causing so much anxiety that you're having panic attacks and stuff, that is an indicator that you need to slow down. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Like when is anxiety just being controlling and a bad thing? And when do you think it's like a, a telltale sign that you need to slow down? And I'm just curious. This is something that comes up in my private practice all the time. It's a really delicate balance and it's really individual for everyone. But I think there is something at the center of this. And again, it goes back to like, how are you approaching this and why and what's underneath it? And what I'm about to say requires a lot of self-awareness. It requires being able to look into the future or plan into the future of your relationship and your emotional development, both alone and together, and like strategize out a few moves. But to say, if you're really anxious and like your logic brain goes, no, everything's fine, but inside you're like, bah! and you need to like have those rigid rules to maybe baby step into things because this is new to you to be able to have the self-awareness to say, look, I know that this can come off as controlling, et cetera, et cetera, but I'm having a really hard time getting used to this, wrapping my head around non-monogamy. This is new. What do you say? We dip our toes in slowly or we put the training wheels on a little bit. Maybe at first, you know, we have these five rigid rules, you know, just as an example. And then as we talk things out, you know, we peel one back. Maybe we peel another one back and we work through that together. So it's like managing that anxiety that you know is there that you can't just ignore and go, well, don't be anxious. Like if that worked, oh, our lives would be great. But to have that strategy to be like, this is a crutch or a training wheels that I need right now for a purpose. Again, it's that intention behind it. But in the long run, the goal is to take those training wheels off because relying on those in the long run might feed into being controlling and not the intention that you really intended to have going into it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one way in my practice that I help people clarify, because a lot of times there's confusion that's also paired with it. And a lot of times I'll do EMDR with one person in the relationship, the one experiencing anxiety, I'll bridge back and find out what it's triggering, ideally clear that out. And once that is dialed down, that trigger that comes from childhood, 
then there's this clarity that happens and they have a better idea of what they need in terms of boundaries. And from that place, they probably will come off as less controlling as well. So it's interesting. I thought maybe we would talk about our own personal experiences a little bit related to fluidity versus non-monogamy. I mean, I know for me, there was a couple of times that I really was grateful for the fact that in my marriage to my now ex-husband, that we did have that fluidity. Like for instance, when I was building my private practice, I had to replace my job at the hospital. And so I was working, I would get to the hospital at like nine, and then I'd leave the hospital and then I'd go to private practice and I'd work till nine to 10 at night. It was just like crazy. And I was working on the weekends, like all of this. And Richard was basically like, I feel like I should just focus and support you. So during that time, we didn't see anybody. We were monogamous in practice during that time. And he just had my back and I'd come home just exhausted. And we'd watch a little bit of TV. And that was kind of like our life for a couple of years. That was super helpful. I'm just wondering if there's been a time that stands out for you where you went from non-monogamy to being monogamous in practice for a time due to some reason. Yeah, I mean, and like your story, I feel like the ebbs and flows that I've had with my current partner, who's really the only one that I've been non-monogamous with, and it's been, what, like 14 years, 15? It's been a long time. We ebb and flow together, so it's worked out really well. And it hasn't been, I know some people will... Maybe there's like you were working a lot or somebody like, oh, they're having a baby or there's a big major life change or there's a time where their relationship might be under stress. So it's a good time to just like focus inward for whatever reason or amount of time. We haven't really had anything like that. But even right now, we're kind of sort of monogamous-ish just because of like it's covid we're both very COVID conscious. We don't go out. I really like, eh, I could take or leave it. I'm just busy. I don't care. You know, I don't care if my partner has other partners. It's like for me, it's like, I don't have time for But just more out of circumstance, like it just doesn't feel right right now. But that could change tomorrow. But I'm curious. I'm curious that for me, it's been relatively easy. But I'm thinking, okay, if I were a different couple in a different circumstance. What if, let's say there's some major life changer. I feel like, oh yeah, we should take this time out to be more monogamous right now. And maybe my partner kind of feels that too, but one of us has a current partner. Do we break up with that partner? Like, how does that work? Yeah. Let's maybe give an example, two different scenarios. Let's say Sadie and who do we want to name them? Sadie and Justin. So in both examples, they have an intention to be more fluid and just kind of go with the flow with life and apply that to non-monogamy. But in one situation, they've always just been swingers. So they're not really emotionally attached to anybody in a deep way. And in both of these examples, they have decided that they're going to be monogamous in practice when they get pregnant and they're working on getting pregnant. In the second example, they both have outside partners. So this is an interesting thing to compare and contrast because in the first example, because the issue is couples privilege, right? And treating other people like they are human beings with heartbeats. Right. In the first example with the swingers, you can pretty much lock down and focus on being pregnant and having the baby and 
and maybe focusing on the baby a year out or what have you, and nobody's hurt, and there's right. no, you just you know? stop going to orgies, you know, <laughs> and stop going to the swing club. Like, yeah, <laughs> right. Right. But in the second example, there's these other partners. And so maybe we can bat that around. Okay, so let's imagine that Sadie and Justin are aware of couples privilege. And so what if from the get-go, when they meet these other partners, they say, we are full tilt poly, we're looking to have deep connections with people, but just so you know, we are trying to get pregnant. We've made an agreement that we're going to lock things down and focus on the baby once we're pregnant. And then we might lock down everything for like a couple of years. And at that point, these other partners can either decide to stay or not. They can like make their own adjustments. Let's say they stay. They might decide how often they want to see them, all that. This isn't a perfect solution because we know that people even, you know, this is a very logical way to look at it, but at least you're giving the other people agency. But at the end of the day, people do catch feelings. So I'm wondering what you think about this. Yeah, I think that in that scenario, if when you meet or start dating or whatever the other partner and you disclose like this is the situation, you now have informed consent to continue with this relationship or not. Okay. You know what I mean? Every kind of relationship is different. There are some people that approach their relationships very like in the moment we are into each other. We are having a good time, but shit changes and that's okay. And that's, you know, they kind of take a more, you know, Zen approach to things. Cool. But this is a perfect example where people are playing the strategy many moves out, knowing how they might feel a year from now, knowing exactly how their non-monogamy journey might bring things up for them. And that's all fine and dandy, but that's usually, I don't think, you know, that feels very like, these people are so self-aware and they have an emotional crystal ball and they know exactly what's going to happen in the future. Like usually in practice, when these things happen, it's like, huh, shit's weird and funky. I wonder why. Huh, we should probably make a new relationship rule. Like we're reactionary in our planning. And that's not a bad thing. It's just like we gain perspective through experience. And if we've never experienced that before, how are we supposed to know what we're going to need once we get pregnant? You know what I mean? So then I think about that situation where it's like, yeah, we've got other partners and sure we're trying to get pregnant, but it never dawned on us that that would affect our relationships until we're like, really into it and we're like oh shit okay we need to make a relationship agreement so now we have to go to our partners and be like so guess what and then that feels real shitty and it's like yeah we could talk in theory about in a perfect situation we would disclose this and talk about our feelings and tell that but how often does that happen like is this just like fuck situations are going to happen is there a good way for people to handle this? So now it's almost sounding like a harm reduction model. When I think about heroin versus methadone, like we're trying to create like methadone isn't great, but it's better than heroin, right? You know, it's like, so letting these other partners know in advance does require a lot of emotional intelligence even to get to that place, but it, it's better. Yeah. And then maybe, and this is where it gets difficult and tricky 
is, of course, this couple who is getting pregnant or got pregnant or whatever, they have this connection. They're nesting partners. They're making other humans together. Even if in their non-monogamy, they're trying as hard as they can to not be hierarchical, there are certain life circumstances that thrust that hierarchy back at us, like being a parent, having the needs of your kids. Again, in a perfect world, no, but in reality, yeah. So I don't know. And maybe it's it's that, okay, husband and wife talk about it. They think, okay, probably the best decision is for us to just be monogamous for a couple of years. But before we make that final decision, let's talk it over with our other partners and say, between us talking, this seems like the best solution, but what's y'all's input? And then maybe they're like, you know what? Cool. Get on with your starting a family. That's fine. They might be like, no, you know, I'm really attached. How about there's some sort of compromise or alternate solution where maybe they don't spend as much time together or maybe they spend more time together as a foursome and not in a sexual way, but in a more like it takes a village community way. Like, hey, we'll come over and make you guys lunch and help you with the baby. And like, we'll just take the focus off of the sexual one-on-one aspect of the relationship and maybe shift the dynamic for everyone a little bit. Like, but that takes a whole lot to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, I think even just the first part that you mentioned, just talking to the other partners and saying, this is what we're thinking about doing. What are your feelings? Rather than like coming down on them and just being like, this is the way. And then once they say their opinions, this is a dialogue, right? It doesn't dictate that you're just going to say yes to whatever they would prefer. It's a dialogue, but just asking seems considerate. And then another thing that you could throw in the mix, if again, we're doing this, getting as perfect as we can related to this stuff. And at the end of the day, it is way more messy usually, is that if you know, if a couple knows that they're trying to get pregnant, then they could try and really choose partners that do seem really stable emotionally. Because let's face it, if you bring in a partner that's very fragile emotionally, They struggle with a lot of mental health issues. You know, they're struggling with a lot of unresolved stuff. And you tell them, just so you know, we're trying to get pregnant. And when we get pregnant, we're going to start to close things down or or we're going to simplify things. We'll keep a dialogue with you and hear your input. But we're probably going to get way more simple with our non-monogamy at that point. Even if you do that, if you're dating someone who's super fragile the chances that they might get attached and be really hurt when you kind of pull back is heightened. Whereas if you choose somebody who maybe has their own partner or partners, they're feeling really stable, they're happy, that it seems like that reduces the chance of doing injury. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that goes for yourself if you're one of the couples. Like maybe all partners, this is what's going to happen. We're all cool with it. And then it happens and you're like... (gasps) but I miss my other partner. I didn't think I was going to. I don't know if I can do this. I don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh God, it's messy and complicated. It is. It is. I hear a lot of people, sometimes it's people that are still at a stage in their life where they're fancy free. You know, they're going to Burning Man and they're just dating different people. They're not living with anyone. They're not married. They don't have kids and they're very dogmatic 
about that couples privilege is the most evil thing in the world. And yes, we need to be very mindful of couples privilege. It can do all kinds of damage. But it's like once you get married, once you have kids, once you have responsibilities, it gets way harder. And I think the older you get in life, the more you honor how difficult it is. Right. Yeah, it's really complex. And then there's the separating the logic from the feelings. It's like, maybe I'm that other partner. And I logically understand why it makes that you don't have as much bandwidth, you don't have as much time, your focus is on starting this new family, etc. And I get that up here in the front of my head. But my feelings are like, but now I feel abandoned. I feel triggered. Like, you know, that you were, you were talking about attachment injuries get triggered. And you can't always just logic your way out of those feelings. Yeah. Right. 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 So this is not a perfect science. And we're just batting this around. That's why we're having this discussion. Because it's like a lot of times people just, you know, they have this way that they want to do non-monogamy. And then they don't think in advance of the different ways. Like back in the day, a lot of people might not know this reference anymore. But the choose your own adventure novel, using that same idea within non-monogamy, I think is very helpful. Because I have so many clients that will just tell their other partners, what they need to hear in order to feel good versus saying, I really feel connected to you, but these are different ways that I may change in the future related to non-monogamy. I might stay with different partners. I might get married and decide to have kids and decide to be monogamous. I might, you know, like to at least tell your partner the different ways that you as an individual might show up within relationships, at least gives people some ability to wrap their head around alternate versions of reality that could unfold. Yeah. And again, I go back to that's hard because are all of us that self-aware? I think of myself like, I don't know if it's my neurodivergence, if it's, you know, whatever, but I have a hard time even conceptualizing the future. I don't know how I'm going to be, feel, whatever, in six months when some major life change happens. Like, how am I supposed to be like, just so you know, in two years, I might feel like this. Like, I don't know how I'm going to feel in five minutes. Like, you know, (laughs) so, yeah. And I think a lot of people can probably relate to that. Like, again, in a perfect world, we'd be like, yes, this is exactly what's going to happen. But in reality, we're not that self-aware and we don't have crystal balls and we don't know. We've never been through these experiences before. This is all true. It's all true. I mean, I think all we can do is bat all this stuff around because a lot of times, as I said, what I see people doing is giving their partner the impression, like if they have a partner and maybe they've even said, look, I love dating you, but you're not the person that I'm going to end up marrying. And they do want to get married at some point in their life. Maybe they've even said that, but a lot of times they've given that person the impression that they will always be with them as long as the connection is there. And then they meet that person that they do want to marry. And then boom, they just shut everything down. That happens all the time. Whereas if you at least say to the person, look, I'm really into you, but I might end up being monogamous with the person that I fall in love with. You know, I I don't know. I think sometimes people can have enough hindsight to disclose these things. A lot. I mean, they, they talk to me about it as their therapist, 
The difference is not having the, they do have the ability to imagine themselves in different scenarios. The reason they don't usually tell their partner is because they're trying to manage, they're trying to create as much harmony as possible. They don't want to have the discord that comes with saying, look, one day we might not be together because I want to get married or, or I want to have kids. Yeah, this reminds me of, we had a conversation with Dedeker and in our conversation, the concept of meta communicating was brought up. And then I had seen a TikTok and it was from a therapist who was, I believe, autistic. And for the life of me, I cannot remember who it was. If I find it, I'll like give it to you. We'll put it in the show notes or something. But this concept illuminated meta communication in relationships to me, like I intuitively knew, but I couldn't explain. So, and he was saying this as someone who is autistic, autistic folks often, and I very much relate to this, automatically have this sort of ability to be in the emotion and be in the moment and also step back and be in like the cognitive logic of what's going on behind the emotion. And the example that he gave was me and my spouse are arguing and we are in it and my spouse is in it. Like that is her whole world. But he's like, for me, I see that we're in a play and we're two characters on a stage and I can be the character on stage in it. And I can also be backstage talking about what the characters are doing. And he's like, I've approached life thinking that everybody could both be on stage and be backstage at the same time. And he's like, I realize like the neurotypical way of thinking is like, the only thing is the stage. There is no, we're going to talk backstage about what our characters are doing with their feelings right now. And he's like, it always fucked me up. Like people just treated me like, what are you, how, how come in the middle of this argument, you're like bringing this logic into it. And when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, because when I'm in conflict with people, I talk to them about what's going on with our feelings as if we are backstage discussing what our characters are doing. And I don't realize they are still their character. And they're like, what are you talking about? This is fascinating to me. Basically, what he's describing is mindfulness. This is what I teach all my clients, you know, that all my couple clients. I'm like, I always talk to them about... You need to get to where, a place where you can watch the Becky and Bob show, like mindfully watching that. You can train. I remember being in my 30s. I'm 54 now. And I was like that. I was just in it. And then somebody talked to me about, about mindfulness. And the first time I heard the concept of watching the Kate show, I thought it sounded crazy pants. But then I trained myself to do it. And now I train other folks to do it. So people can make that switch. And I think that's when I talk about having a conscious, compassionate relationship in my book, that's what I'm talking about. Yes. Like for the life of me, I hope I liked this video. It was a while ago. If I can't find it and anyone listening knows who I'm talking about, please tweet us with like a link to the video or the creator that talked about this because it was brilliant. But he was saying that. So once he realized this, he invented kind of a code word for when he was in some heated debate or argument or whatever with his wife is like, hey, wait can we talk backstage? And that like was the cue to like, let's like bring ourselves out of the intense emotion and really try to like look at when I say, why well, did this? Because it's not because I'm giving an excuse. It's because like, I'm just trying to figure out like, well, I was doing this and I thought that and now I know it's wrong. But so why were you doing that? And how do we end up here? Like we're just figuring out how our characters got where they got 
not making an excuse. And just like that one code word of like, let's talk off stage helps them in their debate. So yeah, when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, that's what I keep trying to do in my arguments. But nobody, I'm the only one that knows I'm backstage. And I didn't know to tell anyone else that. Yeah, yeah. people have to be trained to do that. They, mm-hmm. you had, but they can do it. That's Buddhism. And what's what's so interesting is having that mindfulness, I think, is a big piece of the puzzle that allows a relationship to start to move towards a fluid relationship. That brings me to like that basic Buddhist formula of suffering equals pain plus resistance. So, you know, like to give you an example, like if somebody is in a traffic jam, the person that's practicing Buddhism would probably just be like, okay, I'm in this traffic jam. I can't do a damn thing about it. I'm just going to listen to some books on tape. So they have the pain of the traffic jam, but they're not resisting it. So they don't have suffering. Versus the person that's like, God damn it. And they're screaming at everybody and they're throwing a fit. They're not moving. They're not, it's not helping them in any way. So they're suffering because they're, they've got the pain plus the resistance, you know? And so I think with fluidity in life, it is a more Buddhist way to move through life where you're just noticing what you need or what feels in tune and what's the most authentic in any particular movement at any juncture in your life. And it's just kind of like being water. So that becomes easier to do if you are a non-monogamous person that is single. So I'm not talking about solo poly. I'm talking about a non-monogamous person that's single. You can just be in that Buddhist flow of life and just do whatever feels right in the moment more easily. The more partners you have involved, the more it is difficult to apply Buddhist fluidity to non-monogamy. Or the more complicated your life, the more you have kids and other responsibilities, the more these things populate your life, the more it becomes difficult. I agree. I agree. And I think too... I agree with you about like just flowing with the water and ebbing and, you know, listening to the book on tape. But I think also there are some times where like that motherfucker screaming serves a purpose if it's in perspective and like maybe you intuitively know like I just need to scream and let this out because it is like, you know, that pressure cooker. But I also know I'm not going to scream and let it out in a way where it is directed at somebody. It is putting the blame on somebody. It's more of like a cathartic excuse. And I've done this where it's like, okay, here's an example where totally not a relationship example, but like something is wrong. You know, you've, I don't know, booked a trip with the company and then your reservations got canceled and it really like fucked you up and you're calling to like, straighten it out and you're really pissed and you get this customer service person on the phone and it's not their fault. They get screamed at all day. And there are times where it's like, I'll be so upset. I can feel my voice start or like even like tears, like my face is, I'm so pissed. And I'll be like, okay, so Jessica, customer service representative, I know this isn't your fault and I know you didn't do it, but I'm like really upset. So I'm going to sound really pissed and harsh, but no, it's not directed at you. I'm just really pissed at the situation, pissed at your company. And then I'm like, I can't believe this is unacceptable. <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm sorry, Jessica. I just had to get up. But you do understand? And they're like, she's like, yeah, I understand. You know? <laughs> and like, I mean, 
that just in itself, then she's not defensive like this lady is fucking yelling at me on the phone, uh, you know? So there are times we need to blow up, but we need to do it in perspective, I think. And okay, so not so hurting somebody wrap, else. Yeah. So let's wrap this back into non monogamy and, and look at this. Like, if you have an opportunity to just be in flow where you realize that you need to shift in some way in your life, like, and I'm looking at it in a grander sense of not just fluidity within non-monogamy, but just trying to be in flow in your life. Like maybe, maybe you did a psychedelic journey and all of a sudden you're like, I need to change my job and I need to move to another state, you know, or whatever. And you just know that that's what you need to do. Granted, you shouldn't do that directly after a psychedelic journey. You should wait for, but you know, you had this huge epiphany and you need to flow in some direction in your life that's different or, This isn't a perfect example. I'm trying to think of an example. Yeah, and also within the same example, the partner that you have within non-monogamy has been upsetting you for quite some time. So at this point, you have this opportunity to change your career. You've been struggling in your relationship, your non-monogamous relationship for quite some time. So at this point, do you just go with the flow? Like Bruce Lee, be like water? Or do you fight for your relationship? Do you maybe tell your partner they're being a jerk? And and I think there's times where we want to fight and other times we want to be in flow. And again, I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about this mindfulness. If you make your choices from a grounded place where you're getting in touch with your thoughts, your emotions, your body sensations from a grounded, centered place and you're not reactionary... And then when you're off by yourself and you get to that centered place and in that centered place, you get felt knowing that you need to fight. And again, this doesn't always happen this way, but this is just ideal is to, you know, when you notice that you're getting really pissed to step away and to get centered in that in that way. And I think sometimes if we're able to do that, we still may fight. We still may come back and yell at our partner or what have you, but at least we're doing it from a conscious way, from a mindful way where we're watching the Kate show or we're watching the Bob and Sarah show or whoever, and we make a choice between being in flow or fighting for what we have in our life. Does that make sense? I know I'm rambling a little bit. No, it absolutely does make sense. Because I don't know, I'm getting like a weird, like meta kind of paradox. Because in one way, we're talking about, okay, we're being fluid, and we're getting rid of that rigidity and, and yada, yada, yada. And then when we talk about, oh, but going with the flow, and the if we're always going with the flow in a way that's like very passive and very, isn't that being rigid? <laughs> Right? I mean, right? There are lots of different ways we can individualize or customize going with the flow. Mm -hmm. And again, you could rename rigidity as boundaries. Sometimes rigidity is toxic. And then other times it's just self-care boundaries and, and creating the structure that we need in our life. Right. So all of this gets so complicated. Yeah, it gets complicated. Not only that, I think it's not just hard to recognize the difference between the two on our own, that if we've had any past experiences, like formative experiences or even current experiences in relationships with someone who manipulated those points, that maybe we had boundaries that really were, we're being rigid because these are legit, healthy boundaries. And they're convincing us that we're just being rigid. And those aren't really legit. So it's like, 
if we have that experience of being gaslit about the difference between those two things, of course we all don't know. Of course it's hard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's very interesting. All right. So let's switch gears. One thing that I think is interesting to think about is fluid relationships versus relationship anarchy, because I feel like there's some similarities and there's some differences. I was pondering this last night and I'm like, is relationship anarchy almost like a type of fluid relationship? I'm not sure. Like, I look at them as one and the same. I don't really identify with lots of la- like, I don't go like, I'm polyamorous and I'm a relationship. Anarchy. Like I kind of have like a ugh with those labels for lots of different reasons. But if I were to put a label on it, I guess I am a relationship anarchist. And I look at that as being fluid. When I think about relationship anarchy, which, you know, very quick definition is like not one type of relationship over another, whether that's romantic against romantic or like parental child versus, you know, relationship with your spouse versus a relationship with a best friend or whatever it is, takes priority over another simply based on the societal hierarchy of the importance of that relationship, the time spent or devoted or whatever is just based on what it is, needs, what, you know, whatever. So to me, that is like fluidity, nail on the head. But also a lot of folks use the term relationship anarchy to kind of be asshole. Like they kind of twist it, you know, Uh, I've heard it described as like, really, it's more like relationship libertarianism. And it always makes me giggle. So I guess it's like, what definition of relationship anarchy are we working with? Yeah. To me, when I think of the concept of a fluid relationship, it's more like an intention. And for me personally, it dovetails very much with the spiritual flow that I have right now, where I'm, I'm trying to just meditate when I can, be willing to shift my life in drastic ways, perhaps, if something materializes that feels like it's a better in flow for me. I don't know. I don't know if that's confusing or not. But To me, relationship anarchy has all these nuts and bolts to it at this point. Like, don't you associate relationship anarchy with the relationship smorgasbord? Define relationship smorgasbord. How are are you meaning that? Okay. So for people who don't know, you can... Am I saying that right? Relationship smorgasbord? I say smorgasbord, but maybe it's not smorgasbord. Maybe it's smorgas. I say (laughs) smorgas, but I don't know. Smorgasbord. Yes. So RS, I'll just say that. (laughs) If you were to Google it, you would see all these charts of different things that you can choose. Like, okay, so let's look at our menu here, you know, lover. Maybe we want to have hot sex, but we also want to maybe have a friendship or like it's basically it looks like a menu and you can pick and choose different things from the menu. Like components of your relationship. Right, right. Components of relationship components. Right. Yeah, it's it's very much like looking at a menu and like choosing your meal. Like I want this and then this and the side of that. And you can look at everything that are options and together figure out what you want your relationship to be. I kind of think of that as being part of relationship anarchy. Also, I think of relationship anarchy along with what you said is that ability, like more of a conscious okayness 
with potentially flowing from like, say, a marriage to divorce and being just friends, and then maybe flowing into being a lovership, you know, like that kind of okayness with that kind of flow. I think of that as also a little bit of relationship anarchy. I look at it differently. And again, you know, I'm just reminding listeners, there is no one like this is a definition for everyone. This is the customizability because we all have our own versions. For me, relationship anarchy, if we're looking at the whole pie, the components of the pie are different relationships with different people. To me, it's not different components of one relationship with the same person, but that's the way I look at it. When I I look at, for instance, relationship anarchy, I'll look at my pie that I'm looking at is, let's say we're that couple having the baby, right? It's like me and, and my partner I'm having the baby with and me and my other partner and me and my metamor and maybe me and my mother and me and my children and me and my best friend and me and my whoever's in my life that I'm having close relationships with and then not prioritizing one or the other strictly based on hierarchy like, well, the marriage is always the most important relationship of all. So anytime there's a choice whether to spend time or devote energy, I must always pick my spouse first. Right. It's like, no, maybe based on needs at the moment or it to me, it's not really based on equality. Like you get two days out of my schedule. You get two days out of my schedule. It's more based on equity. Like what are the needs of each relationship right now? And that dictates how the ratio is parsed out. Maybe my best friend's going through a horrible divorce right now, really needs somebody that is going to become the priority relationship in my life right now, based on like the collective needs of the whole pie. Right. Yeah. And not based on, well, she's only my friend and that always takes second fiddle to my husband or something. You know what I mean? Like, right. yeah. So to right. me, that's what relationship anarchy is. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always heard that too. I've just, for some reason, I have it correlated. I have relationship anarchy and the relationships smorgasbord a little bit linked up in my head. It seems like oftentimes I'll hear those two talked about kind of concurrently and so it feels a little bit similar. Yeah. To me. And I think they're similar, at least to me. And, uh, you know, I'm not the non-monogamy expert, so I'm just going with the definitions that I kind of know and love and use in my own life. But the approach or the logic seems similar. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because we do get to custom make the types of relationships. we Like just because we're in a romantic relationship with somebody doesn't mean we have to have the sex part and we have to have the, oh, we're friends and we hold hands walking on the beach and have conversations and we don't have to have like we're raising kids together. Like we can choose whatever the F we want. So it's the same line of thinking, I guess, to me. Yeah, I think they're a little bit different. But in terms of I think you can have the intention to have a fluid relationship And you could say, okay, I am going to have some rigidity in my life in the sense that I am choosing this one partner, right? I'm choosing a nesting partner or a primary partner. But within that, we are going to be fluid. And that's our intention, at least, is to allow that flow between anywhere from non-monogamy to monogamy, whatever fits for us at any juncture, while we can currently think of any other partners involved as much as we can. Whereas relationship anarchy, I think gets a lot more complex. There's a lot more detail in terms of all the little nuts and bolts of it. And all the ways it can go wrong. And yeah. <laughs> 
and become li- relationship libertarianism. And yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And for me, although I think of myself as an expert in non-monogamy, honestly, there's so many different things that are always coming down the pike. And I consider myself more of a, uh, how should I say it? There's sex educators that know all the terms that are coming down the pike every day. I'm more of that person that's organically going to meet with you as a therapist and help you sense into what you need. And if you have any attachment injuries, I'm going to help you move through those so that you can heighten your ability to have the best non-monogamous relationship. You can, but I'm not necessarily the person that's going to have every damn term memorized perfectly. Because right, right. <laughs> yeah. honestly, I think there's more things, you know, things that are more important. Yeah, I feel like this has been a good discussion. And certainly we could bounce this around forever. If we were at a bar dr- having drinks and there was a whole bunch of people there, people could throw into the ring all these different vignettes. Well, how would it work under this circumstance? We could talk about it all day long regarding when it's feasible and and when it's not. But at the end of the day, I think it just reveals how challenging non-monogamy can be. Really challenging. And it requires so much, you know, like we're talking about the self-awareness, the be able to meta-communicate, recognizing like these are emotions and emotions aren't always like logically rational, but they are also very fucking valid and real versus here is like the logic of the situation, you know, from a more cognitive standpoint. Yeah, that's all so hard. And once somebody, you know, the theoretical somebody can get a handle on those things. It's a transferable skill. We transfer that from our relationships to how we operate at work, to our kink life, to our, you know, it goes on and on and on and on. This is so true. I think one final thing that might be interesting to think about is like, what is the benefits and maybe the cons of a fluid relationship and the benefits and the cons of a more rigid relationship. A relationship that leans towards being more fluid, I think, has more opportunities for growth, but potentially could be a little bit more chaotic. It probably requires more emotional intelligence, and it probably requires more experience. And it seems like a more rigid relationship, like swingers or what have you, a benefit can sometimes, especially if you're scared or nervous, like it can create some structure where you know what the rules are, you know what's going to happen or what's not going to happen in advance a little bit more. But then again, it may hamper your ability to grow it, and it might hamper your ability to be truly authentic for who you are in any given time in your life. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. what, what would you say? Do you have yeah, any thoughts I, about I the pros and cons? I absolutely agree. You know, scenario number one is the opportunity to grow, but growth doesn't come without making mistakes, making missteps, journeying into the unknown, doing things that are scary, all of that stuff. Growth is painful and messy and has the potential to really go awry and kick you in the ass. And that's the risk that you take to grow. And not saying that that's always the better way, because sometimes those missteps when you're working on growing can really be bad deal to deal with. So the more rigid rules, you don't have as much opportunity for growth, but you don't have as much opportunity for something to really get fucked up, like major life decision kind of fucked up. So it's a risk profile. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a right. give and take. And everyone's going to pick a different place along that spectrum of risk versus growth. Yeah, yeah. And so listeners, you can probably see how we kind of got even broader from the original definition that I read that comes from my book, but it can get this big. I started out with a definition that's more about just being fluid from the more extreme monogamous relationship all the way down the continuum to the more extreme non-monogamous relationship and just inherently allowing that kind of fluidity from that spectrum. But then there's all these other ways to be fluid as well, which we've been kind of bouncing around in this conversation. I think good imagery to close it up is like when we talk about spectrums in our minds, we think of like back and forth from left to right, from extreme to not extreme. But when we talk about fluid, fluid, that's a big old pool of water and you can (laughs) float anywhere and it's 3D. You can be deep, shallow, left, right, diagonal, anywhere in that (laughs) pool. And that's... It's a lot. That is not your professor giving you three subjects to pick from for your final research paper. (laughs) All right. So I I wonder if people listening to this have some clarity or if they're more confused than when they first started to listen. I'm hoping this at least that when people listen to this, it'll give them some things to think about, especially if you're new in non-monogamy. Give people some things to chew on because how non-monogamy can show up in your life can really change over the course of a life. And a lot of it has to do with what your intention is related to rigidity or fluidity. Mm-hmm. Agree. Yay. So. All right. Ooh, that was a lot. There's a lot to chew on. Until next time, continue to chew and chew and chew and chew and tweet us and hit us up on Instagram and let us know your thoughts. And we will see you back here once again when we dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember... Your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.